to learn more about that mission and how you can be involved. And um, I, I hope you don't, you, you probably like, oh, I've seen that thing how many times now before, right? 16 times or whatever it is. And it's a great reminder to me as I look at it, all the different places that God has us on mission. And we can never forget that. Um, and so what a great reminder. Well, this time I want to dismiss our children who would like to up through the fifth grade um, uh, to head out for Grace Kids. And Miss Ashley's right over there at the door holding up the sign. Um, if you want to follow her out uh, and <clears throat> study the Word of God together. And I would ask those remaining, if you take your Bibles and turn, or your uh, device that might have God's Word on it, uh, to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. All right, well, um, it's football season, so my voice is going to be a little raspy here as it gets in shape uh, for cheering on uh, our favorite football team. So, um, so bear with me this morning as I am a little raspy uh, from being a good fan. <coughs> well, we are continuing our series here in uh, Acts on, about the mission of God, and the, we're going to be covering verses 9 through 24 of Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 24 this morning. And the title of the message this morning is, A Faith That Does Not Save. A Faith That Does Not Save. Um, let me read this passage in, in, as a whole here, and then we'll come back and look at it uh, piece by piece. Beginning in verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and, uh, and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I say that you are in the gall of bitterness, in the bondage of iniquity. That Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come on me. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you so much for your word. And we pray now, as we approach your word, we would do it with humility, with hearts that are ready to be changed, um, or with lives that are be ready, ready to be renewed, or encouraged, or challenged. Um, Lord, we, we understand that we are at your mercy uh, to make um, your word come alive in our hearts. So we ask you to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want you all to take a look at something with me here. All right. 
I wonder what this picture is of. I mean, just think about what, what is this picture of? It's a pretty looking rock, kind of goldish in color. All right, so let me, let me ask what this one is. All right, all right. So here's another picture. Now, some of you have, like me, have had geology in college. I took that so I wouldn't have to take physics in college. All right, there's my physical science. And I did that in the evening class on Monday nights. It was like from six to nine. And Mondays was our latter day for football practice so I could make it in time and just have one time looking at a bunch of rocks. All right, and our final had all these rocks spread out all over this room and you had to go with a piece of paper, one through 50, and write down the name of the rock. All right, the, 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 this is actually pure gold. The first one was pyrite, which is fool's gold. Now, when you see them that close together, you see them side by side, they're very easy to tell the difference. But if they're on, one's on one side of the room and one's on the other side of the room and you've never been taught to discern the difference between pyrite and, and, and which is fool's gold and real gold, you might struggle a little bit determining which is which. If I wouldn't have showed you this picture, all right, if I showed you, if I was just showed you this picture, I mean, it looks gold. It looks like gold. And I wouldn't have shown you the next one, which looks even more like gold because it is gold, right? Uh, you might have had a hard time. And sometimes the coloration of gold is different. It's really, a hard, it's really hard to determine them if you haven't been trained to do so. You can be fooled by fool's gold. And, uh, and the reality is many people have been fooled by fool's gold, thinking they have struck it rich, and they come back. And I can only imagine back in the gold rush days, and they're digging up things, and they're bringing it back to get it, to, to, to get it uh, tested, see if it's real gold, and coming up with this great big huge piece of pyrite and think, oh my goodness, I have hit the jackpot. And they're running to town, um, or probably riding to town, and uh, getting in there and finding out that it's not gold. And their hearts were melted, it's, their hearts sunk that it wasn't uh, gold. But being able to tell the difference between gold and pyrite uh, could, could be important and, and maybe you know, save you some embarrassment um, of being excited about thinking you found real gold. Um, and there is a big value difference, obviously, between real gold and pyrite. Uh, so it may make a big difference in, in your fortune as far as finances go. But being able to discern the difference between a faith that saves and a faith that does not save has eternal significance. Yeah. It's the difference between Christ bearing the penalty of your sin and you bearing the penalty of your sin for all eternity. Or as I like to say, it's the difference between heaven and hell. That's how serious it is to be able to discern a faith that does not save from a faith that does save. In our passage here this morning, we're going to be introduced to a man named Simon. And he uh, has been called Simon the Sorcerer or Simon the Magician down through the ages. And he indicates that he has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this. He's even baptized. He believes and he's baptized. Yet the verses immediately following his baptism reveal a big problem with his faith. Then when you compare his faith, which we'll see this morning, with the faith of the Ethiopian, which we'll see next week, it's completely different. Completely different. And I believe in context. Remember, we always want to study in context. That the reason these things are set side by side is that the early church, 
who had first received the book of Acts, all right, that they would see the difference between a faith that does not save and a faith that does, because not only then, but even now, we can be deceived. Now listen, I hope you're not thinking like this. Oh good, it's going to help me better discern the faith of other people. Don't think that way. I want you to be able to discern your own faith. Don't be so concerned about somebody else. Well, I knew they weren't saved in the first place. Why do we, why do, we do that? We, we look for ammunition. And I'm saying this because I'm guilty of this. And I think if we're all honest, we sometimes listen to a sermon for the sake of others. Boy, it'd be great. Then I'll really be able to give it to that person and tell them their faith doesn't save. You better ask this question this morning. Does the faith that I possess save? Do I have saving faith? Where have I been fooled in thinking that I have saving faith? And I don't. That's the question we all need to ask this morning. This sermon is not for your friend. This sermon is for me and it's for you. And yes, maybe it is for your friend, secondarily. Well, let's look at these verses 9 through 24. Uh, we're going to be confronted with this faith that does not save. And as we approach this passage of Scripture this morning, we always want to remember the context. So let's think back of where we've been. In just immediate context, Stephen has stood before the Sanhedrin and he has told them that everything they accused him of, they're actually guilty of. They're guilty of blasphemy against God, blasphemy against his temple, blasphemy against the, 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 the land, blasphemy against the law. They're the ones guilty, and, and the Sanhedrin and the other Jewish leaders really enjoyed that, didn't they? Oh, thank you for letting us know that, Stephen. We didn't know that, and now we're going to repent. That's not what happens. What happens is that they're so angry with him, they stone him to death. And then right after that, there begins an outbreak of great persecution led by a guy named Saul who was there at that stoning on the church. So, after that, the church went downhill and nothing happened, right? Wrong. In fact, the very great persecution that took place there, um, if you look there in, in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, On that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Which, when we think about this, we are reminded about Acts 1.8. But you receive uh, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the, even the remotest parts of the earth. The great persecution against the church here in Acts 8 was actually used as a catalyst to fulfill the mission of God. The church wasn't defeated when all this happened. As great persecution began to happen, it was used by God to do exactly what Jesus told the apostles they would be doing the Holy Spirit came. They would be used by him and those who followed the message of the gospel to get the gospel to the world. And as the persecution ramped up, remember we talked about this last week, first they were warned, then they were beaten and somebody was killed. And as the per persecution ramped up, so did the mission of God in its fulfillment. It just began to take off and it blow up. And when we get here even to Acts 8, there's over 20,000 people it's believed, in the church of Jerusalem at this time. It blew up quick, even in the face of persecution. And then it went to the ends of the world. Why? Because the mission of God is unstoppable. Now, one of the places that the gospel was promised to go is to what, Jerusalem, Judea. Let me go back here. should be blank. Well, Ju Jerusalem, Judea, all right? Samaria. Samaria. 
And that's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 8, is Samaria. So let me, let me uh, draw your attention there to Acts 8 9 now. This is part of our, our passage. We're in Samaria, and here's Philip in Samaria. He's been preaching. A lot of exciting things have been going on now in verse 9. Uh, now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had, for a long time, astonished them with his magic arts. So here we're introduced to Simon. And we see that he was practicing magic and the people were astonished. And it says they actually, in verse 11, they were astonished for a long time. He had been there for a while. He had developed a great following of people with the, the magic that he performed. And we see he's performing this magic and, and we're not exactly sure if he was just an illusionist. I don't know if you all watch um, America's Got Talent. They got some pretty good illusionists on there. Last week I was pretty amazed this guy had something written in an envelope and he did this, this Instagram thing and he got the judges basically to write down the numbers that he had made on this Instagram thing way before he showed it. It was exact numbers. It was pretty amazing to see what he did. But he's an illusionist. He's an illusionist. So we're not sure if, if, if Simon was an illusionist or if he actually possessed some kind of power he could perform real magic. That he was like someone in the part of the occult. That, that he actually had demonic powers given to him by Satan to fool people. That he actually had powers. That's a very possi real possibility. The text doesn't tell us for sure. We don't know that. We just know that the people were pretty impressed with the power that he possessed. That's what we know. And not only had, were they impressed with the power uh, that he possessed, but he was too. Look at verse 9 claiming to be someone great. So he was telling everybody he was great. Always be careful of people who tell you they're great. Alright, that's just a warning right there for all of us. Those who tell you they're great, you always been to steer clear of those people. Um, and he sure was telling people he was great. And he, and now they look at uh, verse 10, it says they believed, right? And they, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him. They were focusing on him. They, they were buying into he was someone great. And, and and in verse 11 says it again. They were giving attention because they have a long time been astonished. He had their attention. And it's even possible that he was charging for his magic act. Nobody would ever do that, would they? Have a little power, have a little trick, and take it on the road. That's been happening from the very beginning. And Simon was no different. He had probably more than one little trick. He had a lot. And most likely he was charging the people to be a part of what he was uh, getting them to believe. Well, not only did he claim to be someone great, and the people believed that he was someone great, uh, we see that they, they, they even cried out that he was someone great. Look at verse 10 again. This man is what is called the great power of God. They said he was the great. This was his title, the great power of God. Sounds like the, the, the Wizard of Oz, right? And that was about what he was. He was the Wizard of Samaria. And he had them all fooled that his power was from God. The one true God. Now, these Samaritans who are half-breeds, so they probably have some kind of t t pluralistic religion that came from Babylon and also a little bit from Judaism, and they just began to believe a little bit of both. And this guy came along, and he, he probably even mentioned the God of Israel. But he was also mixed in with some of the, the, the strange gods that they worshipped, the false gods in Bab Babylon, and he fit right in. And now he's got them calling, he's the, calling him, he's the great power of God. They're, they're believers. What does it mean, this great power of God? Um, 
Many believe that Simon was the father of what is called Gnosticism. Okay, the word Gnosticism, which comes from the word to know, is, was something that was really developed later, late 1st century, 2nd century in its fullness. But some of its um, foundations have always been around. And it's no different with what Simon um, was teaching. But one of the things that's a foundational from Gnosticism, it means you're to know, I mean you're in the know, you're a special knowledge of God. And one of the things that was taught is that there was one pure God and there was emanations that came out from that God. And the further it got away from the one pure God was less pure gods. It's kind of like concentric circles. You start in the middle, you draw a circle around it. You draw a circle around that, draw a circle around that. The further you get away, the less pure. Well, this, this title, the great power of God, seems to indicate that they believed that he was some kind of divine man. Think about that. They thought Simon, the sorcerer, was some kind of divine man that, that emanated off the one pure God. And maybe he was this close to the one pure God. He was divine man. Does that sound familiar? Sounds very familiar. There's only been one divine man. Now he did nothing, nothing to dispel or hinder their belief that he was the great power of God. In fact, all he did was encourage and strengthen them to think that he was the great power of God. He had a pretty good thing going here in Samaria, didn't he? All the people were coming to him. He was the man. He was the top dog. They all believed that he was divine in some ways. At least up to this point. Now look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized men and women alike. Notice that first word there in verse 12. What does it say? But. And but always denotes a contrast. And there is a huge contrast here. Yes, Simon had been the main man in Samaria. But that all changed when Philip showed up preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. No longer did they believe Simon was the divine man. They had been introduced to the one true God-man, Jesus Christ. And they believed that he had died upon the cross for their sins, that they may be forgiven and be made right with God. And he rose again in three days. They believed that and they put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Simon had lost control of the people. Uh-oh. What was he to do? Kent Hughes, who was a pastor at College Church at Wheaton for a long time, sums up, I think, Simon's response here really well when he writes, Simon got a brilliant idea. If you can't beat him, join him. How do you know that? How do you know that? Well, the passage you'll see clearly teaches that. That's his thought the whole time. Well, if you can't beat him, uh-oh, I'm losing everybody. What do I do? Well, can't beat him. I'll jump right in with him. We'll see what happens. And that's what he does. Um, look at verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Simon knew what his limited power could do. Now whether it was illusions or it was some kind of power given to him by Satan to perform true magic um, or, or true amazing things, uh, we don't, again we don't know. But he saw what was being done through Philip and it was different from what he was doing. This was like the real deal. He had more tricks than Simon had ever seen before. 
He had more power than Simon had ever seen before. So what did Simon do? He makes a public profession of faith and was baptized in obedience to the Lord's command. It even says, I, I love this. Because, well, yeah, you know people baptized and, 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 and they confess Jesus Christ and they're baptized, but they don't continue. Look what it says there. It actually says, he continued on with Philip. It is funny, the wording there. He continued on with Philip. So he's in it for a little while at least because he continued on with Philip. Surely he was a true believer. He was a true follower of Christ, right? I mean, look at this. He believed. He was baptized. He continued on. Now, if the story ended here, we would have no other reason, or no, no reason to think any other thing, that he was truly a believer. If it just stopped right there. But does it stop there? It doesn't. And that's why we look at all the context. And we see what happens. It changes everything. Look at verse 14 now with me. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. The acceptance of the gospel by the Samaritans had reached Jerusalem. So they send the two big dogs to check it out. They send Peter and John. I mean, can you think of any two better guys to send along to check this out, what's going on in Samaria? I can't, and they couldn't either. So they send those two guys. And look what happens in verse 15. These guys, it says, who came down, Peter and John, and prayed for them, they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. What in the world is this all about? Now, this is one of those passages in Acts. People read and they go, ooh, man, that doesn't, that's strange. That's different. What do we do with that? Well, people have done all kinds of things with this. Some people just ignore it and keep going. They don't even let it bother them. You need to let it bother you a little bit. Okay, I'm telling you, let this bother you a little bit. Do you notice what just happened? They had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. They had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Hmm, were they believers or not? Were they Christians or not? You've got to ask those questions. Don't just blow right by it. Because this is different. It should, should be different if you know much about your Bible, if you continue to study the New Testament. That doesn't seem to be how it's supposed to go. And if you're thinking that, good. Let it, let it bother you just a little bit here for a second. Now, some who believe that you receive the Holy Spirit after salvation use this verse to support their view. And you can see, just isolated right here, even, even in context of chapter 8, why they could think that. I understand that view, in a sense. Alright? But that's not true. That view is not true, that you receive the Holy Spirit after salvation. Listen, now... Now, like today, or not too long after this, now either. But here, it's different. What happens is people ignore the transitional nature of the book of Acts. What's happening with the gospel is a transitional book. Remember, I've talked to us about this before when we were in Acts, that Acts is a book of presentation. It presents what actually happened. And this all happened. All these things. Don't ignore what happened in Acts. But listen. The epistles are books of explanation. You've got presentation. You've got explanation. The epistles explain what's going on in Acts. They explain the gospel. They explain what you see in Acts. So we use the epistles to help us better understand the book of Acts and vice versa. There's no doubt about that. But it's a transitional book. It's a book of presentation. 
There's no such thing after the book of Acts as a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe they were Christians. They had placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and please know this. The Spirit was at work. He just hadn't indwelt them yet. But no other place, okay, after the book of Acts, after this transitional period, does that happen. And we see that all throughout the epistles. And I'll give you one example in, in, in Romans 8 and 9. Look what it says. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, listen to this. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's pretty clear. You also go to 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We just keep going. And this same thing is taught. You cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. You ever heard of this? People say this. Well, they're a born-again Christian. They're stuttering. They're stuttering. Born again and Christian are synonymous. You can't be born again and have the Holy Spirit dwell in you and not be a Christian. Or It just goes together. And, and that's what's taught all through the New Testament. So then what then is going on here with Peter and John laying their hands on them and them receiving the Holy Spirit? You've got to ask that question. You've got to say, well, hold on, Brian. You're going to have to prove something to me because that just happened. So surely that could happen today. And I'm telling you, it can't happen today. It won't happen today. Because the rest of the Scripture teaches it won't. There's something happening here. We need to understand what's happening. This is important. This is an important transitional part in the book of Acts. There was... Alright, so all the time, Jesus said, take the gospel to who first? The Jews, right? The Jews first. And you see that early on in Acts. They go to the synagogues. They're going to go to the Jews. Stephen goes to the synagogues. And he's preaching the gospel. Well, now we have Philip and he's in a place called Samaria. There was always the fear that there would be division in the church. It was all, not the fear, just a real possibility. Okay, the Jews accepted Jesus as their Messiah. They were born again. The Samaritans accepted Jesus. They were born again. The Gentiles, and see what could happen? Now, let, let, me, let me explain to you what I mean by this. So when the gospel reached the Samaritans, they believed, right? The apostles, they come on, they lay their hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit. What was this about? It was confirmed to what, this, that this, what the Samaritans had received was the same thing the Jews had received. They're not second-class Christians. That's why this happened. Because what happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came down. And He indwelt the believers. And then what happened? What was the sign of that at Pentecost? They spoke in languages they had never ever spoken before. Ever. No one taught them. They didn't take four years of German. Or 20 years of German. How long ever it takes. They were instantaneously to be able to speak in other languages they had never ever spoken before. That's what happened. It was confirming that this was a work of God. Of course it was also prophesied in the Old Testament that this would happen. That now the Holy Spirit has come. And he's indwelling people, and that had never happened in the Old Testament, permanently. So what's happening here is to say, they're coming, here comes Peter and John, they're the apostles that God had chosen. They come and they confirm that the very same thing that happened to the Jews, the Holy Spirit came upon them, they accepted the Messiah, was now happening in the Samaritans. Now you're saying, there's no place in here that talks about speaking in tongues, Brian. Where are you getting that from? You're making it up. 
But the other two elders aren't here this morning. They're, they're, they're out of town in one sick, so I can say what I want. I'm kidding. All right? You all know better than that. I'm going I'm to show you in Scripture here why I believe that with all my heart. That's exactly what happened. Um, look, look at just in verse 18. Look what it says. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of hands, uh, uh, laying on of the apostles' hands. Notice that he saw something. Don't miss this. He saw something. It, this, it wasn't like they lay their hands and they received the Spirit and they just got up and go, alright, no change. They saw something. He saw something. The context of the book of Acts would teach us that he saw and heard a physical manifestation in the form of speaking other languages that people had never spoken before. I believe that's what he saw. And now I'm going to prove it to you. The same thing happened, the same, same type of thing happens later on in the book of Acts a few times. Alright? In chapter two, 10, the gospel gets to the Gentiles and they believe. Now notice what happens in 10 verses 44 through 46. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. This is Gentiles. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were, were amazed. So the Jewish people who were with them, they were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were for, how did they know? For they were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. They spoke with tongues just like they did at Pentecost. That was a confirmation, again, that the Gentiles were not going to be second-class Christians. In Christ, they were all going to be one. And this was a confirmation now that the Gentiles had come to faith in Christ. Other places later, when they go to Gentiles, there's not a record that this happens again. Because it already come to the Gentiles. Alright? When, when, when the gospel reached them... It was a, they spoke in other languages just like Pentecost. Confirmation. Also, turn, turn in the book of Acts to chapter 19. Or flip or scroll, whatever you need to do to get there, alright? Chapter 19. <clears throat> it happened, alright, verse 1 of chapter 19. It happened that while Paul was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No. Whoa. People who believed who did not receive the Holy Spirit. We have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. So you got this, I don't want to say rogue, but you got this segment of disciples of John the Baptist who had been waiting on the Messiah and they believed that Jesus was going to come and they're just, they're just kind of out here by themselves. And, and nobody's got to them yet. They teach them what happened. And here comes Paul. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with baptism and repentance, telling people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hand upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Just like Pentecost. Just when they, like the gospel came to the Samaritans, when it came to the Gentiles. What was the evidence the Holy Spirit had indwelt them? It was the speaking of tongues. Why? To confirm that the people of the Old Covenant, listen to this, whether it be Jew or Greek, Samaritan, whatever, followers of John the Baptist, that you won't be second class citizens in the kingdom of heaven, in the church, who are all one. It confirmed the gospel was getting out to the people and they were all going to be one. 
No hierarchy. No Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, and whatever else. All one in Christ. I hope, you're, I hope you see this. This is important. This is transitionary. Also, notice in Acts 15, verses 8 through 9. And, and this is the, the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. They come together. Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. And they don't know what to do with them. What we do with all these Gentiles that are coming to faith? They're, 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 they've received the Holy Spirit. And God's using them greatly. And it's amazing. What do we do with them? Well, here's one thing they said. And God, verse 9, who knows his, in verse 8, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. In Acts, the delayed giving of the Holy Spirit to Samaritans and Gentiles was to affirm they were not second-class Christians, but are equal in the body of Christ. Do you see that? That's what's happening here with, with, with Philip in, in Samaria. That's what's going on. That's why. That this was his delay is so when the church would continue to grow, there wouldn't be division because of their ethnicity. And there shouldn't be today either. If you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And we are one in Christ in the body of Christ. I hope that's helpful. It also shows another reason. We're going to get to this one time. I'm, later on, I'm going to do a whole thing on tongues. I, I promised you all that and I'm going to do it, okay? But it also helps us maybe think about tongues in a little different way. One of the purposes for the tongues. It was never to show off, I can promise you that. There's multiple purposes. This is one of those purposes, to, to confirm that the gospel was for everyone. So Pentecost, whether you're Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, or some rogue follower of John the Baptist. I said it, alright? Whatever they were, we're not sure. It's for everyone, and they're all one in Christ. Hopefully that helps you deal with this passage. Don't ignore it, it's important. And I hope you understand, I hope I didn't confuse you. It's to confirm the unity of the gospel. Now let's look back again at verse 18. Come back to our buddy Simon here. Uh, verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon, seeing an opportunity to maybe win back his popularity, to win back his following, he's saying, Oh man, this is an amazing power. Check this out. I gotta have that power. Notice what he tries to buy, though. We just read very carefully. It's like we saw, and Simon saw something. Let's, let's see what he tried to buy. He did not try to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice that. He did not try to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice what he did try to buy. He wanted the power to lay hands on others so that they would have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that with Simon. It shows his heart. What's he in for it? He wants the power. He wants the prestige. He wants the position of the great power of God again. He's not concerned about his own heart. He's really not concerned about their heart. He just wants the power to help people do this because if you give someone else the power to do this, who has power over you? Simon. Simon. Notice he did not ask for the Holy Spirit himself. He didn't try to buy that. He tried to buy the power to give the gift of the Holy Spirit to other people. Don't miss that. This is where the word simony comes from. Anybody hear the word simony? Great, just me. Okay. Um, <clears throat> well, let me tell you what simony is. And maybe you remember way back in history class when you read about the Middle Ages and those kind of things. But what would happen, the word simony came from Simon because Simon was trying to buy power 
in the church. So what would happen is that people were trying to buy positions in the church. You read this all out th throughout church history. And if you took any kind of world history, you realize people would use their power influence and they would buy bishop seats. They would buy power within the church so they could have, because what happened is the church and, 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 and the government kind of became one. They would give them power in the world. So it's the buying and selling of ecclesiastical positions and power. That's where we got the word simony. If you go read your, you know, dust off, or you probably sold it when you got out of college, right? That book to get the $10 back that you paid 100 for, all right? And, but if you find that book somewhere, like in a used bookstore, go look up church history, and, or just history of the Middle Ages especially, and you see the word simony. Is that helping ring a bell with you now? You see that word? It's there, and that's where it comes from. So did Simon, Simon receive what he wanted when he tried to buy this? No. All he got was a negative term named after him. That's why you don't hear a lot of people called Benedict either, right? The very same thing. That's Simon here for you, all right? Well, Peter, of course, responds to this request to buy the authority to lay hands on people so they may receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He, of course, responds with, bless your heart, Simon. You just need a little more instruction. Let me take you to the side and let's talk about this a little more. Is that what Peter does? No, let's look at Peter does. Verse 20. But, but Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. He rebukes him and he exposes his heart. And this is the most loving thing that Peter could have done. He didn't coddle him. Oh, you just kind of misunderstood. No, he didn't misunderstood because he exposed his heart. He knew his heart immediately. Immediately, just because of what he had said. And what's amazing here is that you thought you could obtain the gift of God. Let me ask a question. Can you obtain or buy a gift? If you buy a gift for yourself, it's not a gift. It's bought. It's attained. It's acquired. It's, it's earned. And the word gift here is the word cares, which is the word grace. And you can't earn grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Which is just so funny that he thinks that he could buy grace. He can buy a gift. You can't buy a gift. And you think, yeah, I go buy a gift for myself all the time. It's not a gift. You bought something for yourself. It's not a gift. <laughs> buy something for someone else and then give it to them and don't ask them anything for it. That's a gift. It's ironic in just the words that are used. His heart has not changed. He had not seen his need for a Savior and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save him from his sin. Not at all. Look at verse 22. Peter continues. He's not done. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in gall bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. Peter calls him to repent so that he will be forgiven. In verse 23 he says it's in, he's in a terrible and ugly position as he possibly could be. You look at the gall of bitterness is what it says in the New American Standard. He's in the worst possible place he could be. It's ugly. Things are ugly in your life. Things are ugly in your heart, Simon. And then look what he says. Why? Because he's in the bondage of iniquity. He's enslaved to sin. This is a condition not of a believer, but of an unbeliever, of a lost person. Someone who's enslaved to sin. Because Romans chapter 8 teaches this. That when Jesus... Become, comes into your life, you've got a new master. And it's no longer sin. It's him. Do you still struggle with sin? Yes. But for the very first time in your life, you have power with the right motive and the right heart to overcome sin. And you never did before. Why? Because a new master has taken over. 
You're not enslaved to sin. You're a slave to Christ. You can't be both. Can you struggle with sin? Yes, but you can't be enslaved and held bondage by sin because you've been forgiven of all sin. You think Simon's a believer? No way. He doesn't have a faith that saves. Well, how will Simon respond to this? You're so right, man. I'm an awful sinner. Please, uh, Lord, save me. Forgive me. I repent. So what he does? Now, somebody write, might read this and go, yeah, look at that great response he gives. Let's read it real carefully. Verse 24. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Does he acknowledge his sin? No. Does he repent? No. He asked Peter to keep him from the temporal consequences of his sin is what he does. He's scared a little bit. And he didn't want that to come upon him. So, Peter, you do that. You can't, Peter can't do it for him. Peter cannot repent for him. He can't acknowledge his sin before God for him. That's something only Simon can do. He doesn't repent. He doesn't believe. Why? Because he has a faith that does not save. His faith isn't the Lord Jesus Christ. It's still in Simon. That's who it's in. Question. How about you? How about you? How about me? That's the question we need to ask this morning. Do you have a faith that does not save? Here's my guess. Someone in here doesn't. And I'm not thinking of any particular person. Probably more than someone. Someone's. Plural. And here has a faith that does not save. And yet you believe. And you've been baptized. You've even continued on. You keep coming to the church building. To meet with the people called the church. It's just a reality. That's the truth. Ask that question. Do I have a faith that does not save? What is your motivation for following Jesus? Or being part of his bride, the church? What's your motivation for following him? Is it friends? Many people come to the church and there's a lot of great people. And there's a lot of great people in our church. You, you bet. I think we've got the greatest church in the world. And there's some great friends that you could get in this church. I promise you. If you don't have any friends in this church, it's your fault. Get some friends. There's friends everywhere. Some great friends. But some people, that's their only motivation for coming to be a part of the things of God is there's some good people. They treat me really well. They feed me really well. It's a, it's a good motivation, but not really the right motivation, all right? They feed me well. They do all these things. That's the wrong motivation. If that's as far as your faith goes, that you're interested in the things of God because you get friends out of it, you have a faith that doesn't save. How about this? Maybe your motivation is popularity. I mean, there's some pretty cool people in this place. Aside from the pastor, all right? But there's some other cool people in this place. And, and you, people hear a lot of good things about our church. And that's a good thing. And I'm proud of our church for that. Our church is out in the community. It's serving. It's serving other ministries. They're getting the gospel out in our community. It's helping people in all kinds of ways. Most of all spiritually, but other ways as well. And I'm proud of our church for that. And our church has a good name in our community overall. It really does. And people here really know us. That's a good thing. If that's the extent of your faith that you're coming here and your motivation is come here because you want to be a part of a church that's popular, that has a good name, then you have a faith that doesn't save. How about, you, how, how about 
they can help you raise your kids. We just had a great thing on Wednesday night. We had Chad Alexander's pastor, First Baptist Church, come, and he taught a bunch of parents about this, this next step in life of helping your children become adults and letting them know that and giving them away responsibility. How do you do that practically? It's a biblical thing, but how you do that practically is really good. Some person asked me a few years ago, why would you bring a pastor from another church in our area to do something here? I've had him come and do a man, man's thing one time, and, and that person's no longer here, so I'm not, and I'm not really gospel. Just, I said, that's like competition. They may not like him better than you, go there. Well, good, if they like him better, they can go there. That's okay, I don't care. That's not, that's not what I'm in this for, all right? And Chad did a great job, didn't he? He did a great job. But if you're here and you're coming just because we'll help you raise your kids better, that's the only reason you're coming, you have a faith that doesn't save. How about finances? I mean, we've, we've, done, we've done crown ministries a long time ago. Now we do Dave Ramsey's stuff, all right? Teaching people how to handle the finances biblically. And maybe you came and, man, I, man I'm handling my finances biblically now. I mean, I'm saving and, and, and I'm, 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 I'm giving, I'm saving, and I'm spending right. And, and I'm, I'm spending now so that I can have what I couldn't have. I wouldn't have spent this way. I mean, it's just amazing what I've got. I mean, I'm, this is amazing what's happened with my finances. If that's the extent, something wrong with that. If that's the extent of your faith. Faith in what God can do for you to help you manage your finances. And that's why you're part of the visible body of Christ. And you have a faith that doesn't save. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome to Grace Bible Church. <laughs> but I'm just teaching the Bible. This is, what, this is the issue. This is a Simon kind of heart. If those are the only motivations we have. Again, there's nothing wrong with having friends. There's nothing wrong with being a part of a church that has a good name. There's nothing wrong with raising your children in a way that honors the Lord. And you do derive some... some temporal blessings from that. There's nothing wrong with handling your money in a way that honors the Lord because you do get some temporal blessings from that. But that's the only reason. You're missing the whole point. Your motivation's wrong. Your heart is still enslaved to sin. Maybe you're coming for a position. Uh, you like to have a position of importance. Maybe power. Maybe even possessions. You see someone else has something that you'd like and you want it. I don't know what it is. But if those are the only reasons you're in trouble. I urge you to do what Peter told Simon to do. And he didn't. As far as we know. Maybe he did later. I, I hope he did. I don't know. But he didn't at this point. Is to repent. To repent. What does that word mean? It means to change your mind. Change your thought. Change your direction. From trusting in yourself. To make yourself right with God. From self-righteousness. To turn from that and transfer your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sin that you might be forgiven. That's what it means. To repent so you can be forgiven be made right with God. I urge you to do that. And I urge all of us to examine our heart on this. All of us. And then be faithful and loving just as Peter was and call people to turn from trusting themselves in sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our call. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning, for your word. Lord, thank you for the clarity of this. And Lord, as we examine uh, Philip and the Ethiopian next week, Lord, to see a faith that does save, Lord, I pray we would see the contrast. But Lord, we can see that he's already here. Lord, I pray that we would all examine our hearts, each person in this room this morning, to ask the question honestly, do I have a faith that does not save? Well, be gracious to those who don't. Help them see their sin and need for a Savior. And for those who 
do have a saving faith, Lord, I pray that they would rejoice in the faith that you have granted them to believe, in the gift of salvation you have given them in your Son, and Lord, that we would live in light of that fact and be a church that's on your mission to redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.